Let's pray as I begin. Jesus is Lord, and what a wonderful Lord you are, Jesus. You are gentle and compassionate, and yet you are strong and powerful. And we thank you that we can call you our Lord. And as we spend the next few minutes looking at this part of your word, we pray that you would rule in our hearts. Please rule in my heart and over my lips. And would each of us leave this building with a fresh sense of what it means to call you Lord and a fresh desire to make you Lord for the week ahead. Amen. There are some days uh, when I wake up and I find the prospect of serving Jesus um, very costly. And there are days when, for whatever reason, um, life seems very hard. And the temptation is to find serving Jesus just that one thing too many. Um, and I don't think I'm alone in that regard. So uh, picture Arthur. Um, Arthur's a Christian. He's got children approaching secondary school age. And in his younger years, Arthur was a very active Christian. Um, he preached occasionally. He, he even flirted for a short period with the idea of getting ordained. But deep down, Arthur knows that more recently, he's taken his foot off the gas, so to speak. I mean, he's often exhausted when he gets in from work. Um, he doesn't remember the last time he prayed with his children before their bedtime. Home group and the church prayer meeting have slipped off his radar. Um, and even in front of the telly is just so much more appetizing and much less demanding. Arthur's tired. Arthur's weary. He doesn't have the energy he used to have. And actively serving Jesus just feels like one thing too many. See, for Arthur, the issue is weariness. Or imagine Brenda. Um, on her better days, Brenda really wants to live for the Lord. Um, she's invited her friends and her neighbours to Christian explored more times than she can remember. They're always polite, but they never come. Last year, she ploughed all of her energies into the, uh, into the um, children's group at church. And there were some fun times. But each week with the kids, it felt like it was one step forward and one step back. She feels so pathetic. It's hard to see what difference she is making anywhere to the kingdom. And on her worst day, she finds herself wondering why God doesn't do, do more to help her. Or even whether it's worth serving Jesus at all. I wonder whether you can relate at all to either Arthur or Brenda. I know I certainly can. That There are days when I feel weary and weak and when the prospect of serving Jesus can just feel like one thing too many, like the straw that might break my camel's back. So, what's the answer? Uh, what do we say to ourselves when we're tempted to find it very tough serving Christ? What, what does God have to say to us? We've, uh, we've reached the, the fifth chapter of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. If you close your Bibles, it's on page uh, 1160, and it'll help you to have that open. Um, and we've talked about it over the last few weeks as the letter that Paul didn't want to write. Because Paul is coming under attack in this church uh, from a number of uh, self-appointed spiritual leaders who attack him, who rubbish his ministry because it's so weak and unimpressive. Because it, it's just not all that special. <coughs> And Paul finds himself having to defend himself against all of his um, 
kind of better interest, better desire, because he knows that this church are in danger of giving up on the gospel. And in chapter 4 last week, we heard Paul explain why God lets him be so weak. And it's so that the power in his ministry is so obviously God's and not his own. And Paul ended chapter 4 with these amazing words. Um, He said, "Um, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, Paul said, I don't lose heart because I look ahead to what I've got in store, what Christ has in store for me. And in chapter 5, he begins to unpack a little more of what it is that Christ has in store for him and how this keeps him from losing heart. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next 20 minutes or so. And for Paul, it is all about the resurrection. It's all about the resurrection. And that's not particularly Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection, the resurrection of all people when Jesus returns to judge the world. That's what he's talking about in this slightly funny language that he uses in the first few verses. So come with me to chapter 5, verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now, with all this language that Paul's talking about here, he's talking about his body. Paul's talking about his body. And did you see how he describes it in verse 1? The earthly tent we live in. I think that's fascinating, isn't it? We, We seem to live in a world that is obsessed with our bodies. Um, I I try and avoid looking at the magazines by the checkout in Tesco's, but but they are always telling us how to get a perfect body, um, how to get that ripped six-pack, whatever whatever that might be. There's TV programs about how to lose weight. There are flyers that come through my door on a regular basis inviting me to join a gym. Apparently, in 2007, we spent worldwide more than £15 billion on gym memberships. Now, I don't want to suggest there's anything wrong with trying to keep healthy. But back in 1979, Lewis Thomas said, he said this, as a people we've become obsessed with health. We do not seem to be seeking more exuberance in living as much as staving off failure, putting off dying. That was more than 30 years ago. And I wonder whether his comments are, if anything, even more pertinent today. Yet now, again, of course, it makes sense to try and stay healthy. But I wonder if this guy, Lewis Thomas, is correct. That actually this obsession with health in our culture is driven by a fear of death. Because we all know deep down at a gut level that as time goes on, our bodies will increasingly fail us. And we're terrified that as that happens, we'll be left with nothing. Paul's attitude is strikingly different, isn't it? How does he speak about his body? The earthly tent we live in. That's how he thinks of his body, the earthly tent we live in. When I was growing up, we used to um, go as a family on camping holidays. And I've got some great memories, of course, of French cricket out in the sun and all that jazz. But there was one time when um, we just happened to catch the end of a tropical storm that that was blowing across the Atlantic and caught um, the bit of France where we were were camping. Um, My mum and dad spent many hours that night in the driving rain trying to hold the tent down because it was getting battered by the storm. And the danger was that it would get blown away. 
And that's the problem with the tent, isn't it? It's just not all that robust. It's going to get torn. Uh, eventually, it will collapse, hopefully when you're not inside it. Well, Paul says that is what our bodies are like. Yeah, they're fine for a season, but one day they will get torn. They will eventually collapse. They're not all that robust. Paul looks at his body and says, yeah, it is frail. It will fail me. It's like a tent. He's not in denial. And the reason he he can cope with that, the reason he can stare um, straight at the frailty of his body and admit that one day it will die on him is that he knows he's got a better body coming. See, Paul knows how to get a perfect body. He knows how to do it better than any of those magazines you can pick up from Tesco's. And it's got nothing to do with stomach crunches, which is a relief. He says this, 5-1, We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. It's not unusual for... Christians to think about the afterlife um, as something that's just a little bit shadowy, a a bit vague, um, full of slightly indiscriminate people floating around in nighties, all these disembodied souls all over the place. Uh, In fact, actually, even giving it the name afterlife kind of gives it away, doesn't it? It makes it sound like this life is the real deal and that what comes next after death is just a a bit of a sad apology for existence. Well, that couldn't be further from the way that Paul thinks when he looks towards life after death. See, he's looking forward to the resurrection. He's looking forward to inheriting a body, a house, not a tent, a house, um, in heaven, not built by human hands, crafted by God himself. I love the way it's described at the end of verse 4. While we're in this tent, we groan in a burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed by a heavenly dwelling here we are, so that what is mortal, his body now, may be swallowed up by life. Isn't that an amazing picture? When Jesus rose from the grave on the first Easter Sunday, he didn't float uh, around Judea in a nighty. He rose with a physical body. He rose with a body that could walk and touch and be touched and eat. But The body Jesus had when he rose in the grave was no longer mortal. It would never die again. It would never look older. See, Jesus' resurrection body was free from the curse that holds the entire world in its grip. Uh, The Bible calls that curse um, the bondage to decay. And we call it all kinds of things. Scientists might call it entropy. Um, People call it the aging process. Um, It's the reality that every single living thing in the entire universe is moving irresistibly towards the grave, one second at a time, and you cannot halt it. But it doesn't matter what you call it, because Jesus' body on that Easter Sunday was free from it. He was free from the bondage to decay. Sure, in many ways, the body he walked around in looked similar to the one that had hung on the cross just three days earlier. But it was unimaginably better because it was free. It would never die. It couldn't get old. What was mortal had been swallowed up by life. And Paul says the same will be true for every believer. So when Paul feels weak and weary, he says to himself, of course I do. 
course I feel weak. I'm in a tent. It's mortal. The real building that I'm meant to live in forever, well, it's still to come. See, Paul takes his frustrations with life now and by the Holy Spirit turns them into longings for what's still to come. He knows that he is on an irresistible trajectory towards the resurrection. You see that in verse 5. He says this, verse 5, It is God who has made us for this very purpose. See, God made us to be there in the resurrection with him. God has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. See, the spirit just gives a tiny foretaste of the extraordinary blessings that will be ours in the new creation. He gives us enough, perhaps just enough, to make us long for it. See, Paul longs for the resurrection, but, but, we mustn't misunderstand this. Yeah. We mustn't think that Paul is only interested in serving Jesus because of what he can get from him. And that's where he goes in the next few verses. Just glance down with me at verse 8. He says this, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, um, at first glance, all this talk of being at home and away and the body and the Lord and tents and buildings can be slightly confusing I think it's quite simple. You see, Paul longs for his resurrection body. He longs for the moment when he can enter life and the blessings that God has for his children and when the word death can just be erased from his dictionary. He longs for that day. But he knows that can only happen when Jesus returns to judge the world, um, to usher in that new creation. And as Paul writes this letter, 1900 and how many years ago, he knows that hasn't happened yet. And it still hasn't happened today. Jesus still has not yet returned. So what happens to a Christian who dies before Jesus returns? And that's what Paul's talking about here. It's very simple. They go to be with Jesus. I think that's why Jesus on the cross could say to that thief who asked him to remember him, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. See, Christians, when they die, go to be with Jesus. But they're there without a body. I guess that's where the idea of heaven being full of disembodied souls comes from. Um, it's often called by theologians the intermediate state. Uh, I guess it's called the intermediate state because it's not, it's not the ultimate destination. It's not what God ultimately intends for his children. So Christians, when they die and go to be with Jesus and leave their earthly body behind, leave the tent behind... Um, they're there with Jesus in heaven, waiting. That they're waiting for the day when they'll receive their resurrection bodies, when Christ returns and establishes the new, the new creation. And I guess that being without a body will be a pretty frustrating experience. In many ways, I guess it'll be like sitting in a waiting room where you don't really get to do all that much. And yet Paul says that he would choose that existence over his current life. See that in verse 8? We would prefer to be away from the body, where he is now, and at home with the Lord. He says he would prefer to be there. Why? Because then he'll be with Jesus, and he'll be able to see him. A few years ago, um, I was leading a Bible study group, which included a, a Christian man in his mid-twenties, 
Um, and there was a conversation that we regularly had where he would tell me how he wished he could see Jesus um, and how hard he found it not being able to look at him. Um, what, what a challenge it was to his Christian life that he couldn't see the Lord. And I, I think at the time I never really got my head around uh, what he was saying. I think I probably thought deep down that he was, he was quite a weak Christian and he just needed to knuckle down and get on with it. But I wonder if actually he was the one in whom the Holy Spirit was working powerfully. See, because there's, there's a right sense in which we should be dissatisfied with life now simply because we're not with Jesus. See, an engaged couple long for the day when they can stop living as two single people and forge a life together. Or, or, or imagine a mum who, for, for reasons and circumstances out, outside of her control, is separated from her kids from, from a significant length of time. She longs to be reunited with those children. Every moment, she's pining for them. See, we, we can imagine um, human relationships which are intensely frustrating simply because two people cannot yet be together. And they long, they live for the, the day when they can be reunited. Well, how much more should we long to be with Jesus? How much more should we long to be able to see him? See, Paul longs for the resurrection. But maybe even more, he longs to be with Jesus. And so, verse 9, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. And um, if I was writing the letter, I would stop there uh, because I think that's a great conclusion. And what Paul says next caught me completely off guard. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So right at the end of this little section, Paul slips an extra reason in for living to please Jesus. And it's this. It's very simple. We will have to give account to him for the way that we've lived. I wonder whether Paul knew his heart uh, very well. Um, I wonder whether Paul knows our hearts very well. Because I suspect, certainly for me, that the temptation in, in knowing that your future is secure, uh, the temptation in knowing that you have a resurrection body to look forward to, is just to ease up. If you know you've got an amazing retirement package and pension waiting for you, then it's just possible that you lose the incentive to fill every minute with 60 seconds distance run. So I wish that um, my love for Jesus was enough to keep me serving the kingdom every day of my life. But I suspect the reality is um, that it won't be, not every day, not this side of heaven. Which is why, and I guess it wasn't for Paul either, which is why he and we need to remember the truth of verse 10. That Christ is a judge and that one day we'll give account to him for the way that we've lived. Now, we, we of course need to be careful here. Um, this judgment isn't one that determines whether a Christian is saved or not. See, our salvation is secure because of Jesus' death. Uh, that was clear uh, all the way through this, through this chapter. Paul has no doubt that he will enter the resurrection with Christ. See, the punishment that he and each of us deserves for our rebellion 
has been paid in full 2,000 years ago by Jesus. And yet still, we will give account to Jesus for what we've done with our lives. And Jesus taught us much in the parable of the talents, I don't know if you remember it, where the master, on, who represents Jesus, when he returns to his household after a long absence, calls his servants in, and, and he just asks them what they've done with his possessions. Now, um, we mustn't live in dread of that day. And one of the surprises of that parable is the extraordinarily generous way in which the master rewards his servants for using his, um, his possessions well. Uh, it, it's, a, it's amazingly encouraging from these verses in 2 Corinthians to see that it's possible to live a life that pleases Jesus. And yet, the point remains... We will give account to Jesus for our lives. And Paul found motivation in that to keep him going. I wonder whether it motivates you. See, Paul longs for the resurrection. Um, Paul longs for the day when he'll see Jesus. And so he lives now to please him. So what do we say to ourselves uh, when we're feeling just, just a little bit like Arthur or Brenda? Um, how do we respond when we're feeling weak or weary in the Christian life, when we're tempted to discouragement? What do we say when we're finding ourselves just wondering whether serving Jesus is just a little bit too costly? Friends, I think we've got two options. Um, the first is very simple. Um, when we feel weak and weary, when, when something deep down inside says it shouldn't be like this, uh, we can take those feelings as a sign that we ought to ease up. And plenty down the years have done that. Some dramatically give up on Jesus overnight. Others just bit by bit, ever so slowly, drift away from the Lord. Uh, and increasingly fix their hopes on this world. On making heaven for themselves here. I wonder whether that's the trajectory that Arthur is on. The tragedy, of course, is that the tent of their bodies will fail. Just like everyone else's. They haven't got an answer to death. And as they increasingly fix their hope on this world and try and build heaven here, they'll find it slipping through their fingers more and more. And, and on that final day, uh, when they're held to account by Christ, they'll be found desperately wanting. That's the first option. The second option, when we feel weak and weary, when we're frustrated, when, when we find ourselves saying, I'm not sure it's meant to be like this. It just doesn't feel right. Well, we won't be surprised. We won't be saying to ourselves that something strange has happened. We'll say, no, no, it's not meant to be like this. God has made me for something better. He's made me to be with him forever in a perfect new creation. It's not meant to be like this. And it won't be like this one day. Finding life hard now is not a reason to give up on Jesus. But is actually a reason to long even more for the resurrection to long even more for the day when we'll be able to see Christ. See, feeling weak and weary isn't a reason to try and find heaven here on earth. That's always going to fail us. But it's a reason to set our hope fully on the heaven that's to come. See, as I was preparing uh, this sermon, I found myself thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. Because the Spirit does produce um, some wonderful things in our lives, love and joy and peace, and, and, and the list goes on. And these are wonderful things. But the Spirit also produces frustration and groaning in us. 
That's what Paul knew. The Spirit also causes us to long for that day when everything will be put right, when we'll be face to face with our Lord, when we'll be free from the bondage decay in a glorious body, in a world that is perfect. And as we let the Spirit point us ahead to that day, we'll find that here and now, what, what matters to us is that we live to please him. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we say yes to every ministry opportunity that crosses our paths. At times, living to please Jesus uh, may actually make it easier to say no to things that we know will disappoint people because we're living for Christ and not for human beings. But what it will do is it will mean that we set our eyes on the future, that we become increasingly those who draw encouragement from what's still to come and find that that energises us now. Because what matters to us is that on that last day, we hear Christ come and say to me, to you personally, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. I wonder whether we might not just spend a moment in prayer, privately doing business with the Lord. Maybe asking what it will look like this week to live longing for the resurrection. Maybe asking him to give us that desire in our hearts to be with him. Let's just take a moment to pray.